How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome, everybody. We are, of course, here on Wednesday with our friend, Dr. Kelly Victory, and we are joined today by, again, by Dr. Pierre Corey. He, of course, is the former chief of the Critical Care Service, medical director of the Trauma and Life Sports Center at the University of Wisconsin. He has a new book he's going to tell us about, amongst other things. He's also the FLCCC president. And his book is War on Ivermectin. He, uh, I think he and Kelly share some similar views on that. And uh, I've got some questions with him, something we got into last time about academic medicine and publication. But uh, we are working on getting Twitter spaces set up. There appears to be something on the Twitter side this time, so we'll keep working on that. But we are with you, as always, on Rumble Rants and the Restream. So we'll look for you there just right after this. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. You can spend thousands of dollars trying to look a few years younger, or you can skip all of that hassle and go with what works. Genucel Skincare. Genucel is the secret to better skin. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genucel during a recent unplanned moment on our show, when just a little Genucel XV restored my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's how fast these products work. I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at GenuCell.com. Susan and I love GenuCell so much, we've created our own bundles so you can try our favorite anti-wrinkle treatments, correcting serums, and ultra-retinol creams. Just go to GenuCell.com Drew. Use the code Drew for an extra discount and free priority shipping. Again, that is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. And of course, you can follow Dr. Pierre Corey on Twitter at Pierre Corey. His last name is spelled K-O-R-Y. And Pierre Corey on Substack and D-R, Dr. Pierre Corey, K-O-R-Y.com. Also, FLCCC.net. And just a reminder, again, he's former chief of critical care and medical director of trauma at Life Support Center at University of Wisconsin. Please welcome Dr. Pierre Corey. To Drew. Nice to see you. Good Thanks. to see you, my friend. So uh, this has been an interesting arc uh, across which I've been speaking to you. And, and last time we talked, I was really, I don't know if you remember, but I was really sort of baffled by the way academic medicine had been behaving. And I'm still a little baffled by it. Um, I mean, more has come to light. But, but I'm increasingly interested in what happened with medical publications. 
Um, you know, I'm used to medical literature going back and forth in the literature. You know, the things are the literature sort of arrives at a conclusion. It, it doesn't all go one way. But during COVID, everything went one way, and so I knew there was something wrong with the literature. What happened? And are you a little optimistic that things are going to normalize a bit? Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, Drew, that question to me, if, from everything that I've learned in the last three years, I, I have literally come to the conclusion that the entire war on repurposed drugs, ivermectin is only one of them, right? That's not the only one they attacked, um, was fought with the most powerful weapon was the high impact medical journals. That, that really was the tip of the spear. And, um, you know, what happened with those journals is, I mean, you watch their behaviors. And, and in my book, I document all of this, right? So one of the most powerful disinformation tactics, right? So disinformation, which was actually invented by the tobacco industry back in the 50s, um, it's literally the tactics used by industries when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. And one of those tactics is named after American football plays. It's called the fix. And the fix has three actually different versions of it. So one is conducting and publishing trials with predetermined results. Check. <laughs> they did that six times in COVID. In fact, I have a chapter called the big six. Those are the only ones that hit the airwaves, the newspapers, and they were all published in high impact medical journals. There are actually 95 controlled trials that nobody's heard about. They, you only hear ones that hit, you know, drove those headlines. So one was they conducted fraudulent trials. The second is in terms of generic off-patent repurposed drugs, they censor any positive reports. So I have another chapter where I share emails with investigators all over the world who studied ivermectin and they have a stack of rejection letters, even like top quality trials. Rejection, rejection, rejection. And they were actually all commiserating, saying, where can we publish, guys? We can't get this information out. And so so one was the rejection and retractions. And Drew, you know part of my history. I mean, the paper, our first paper on Ivermectin, which got published, if you look cumulatively at the amount of years in academia, myself and my partners uh, all have done, it's probably 130 years, over 1,500 peer-reviewed publications for the first time in our careers. We had a paper pass peer review and get rejected at the editor level. We've never, ever seen that. And so it, it's really the, the censorship and propaganda at the level of the high impact journals, I think, did the most damage because that's where the world looked to for the truth. Right. I'm using my air quotes here. And when the truth that gets presented in those journals, right, which is these are the most highly regarded journals in the world, like. Drew, my transformation, when, when COVID started, like, I, I, like you talked about, like reading medical literature, you know, I kind of always knew that the hidden hand of pharma was there. I thought they were on the edges, you know, maybe manipulating a trial or hiding a little data here or there. But now, from what everything I've learned, I mean, they control those high impact journals. What appears in those journals is what they yeah. allow to appear in those. Period. Period. End of story. Yeah, and so, interestingly... Yeah, I, I have I have shared your concern, and I, I brought this up with RFK Jr., and he said his first day in office, he's going to call in the editors of these major impact journals and tell them uh, that they need to solve their editorial problem, or he's going to prosecute all of them under a RICO Act. And I thought, wow, wow that that caught my attention. <laughs> that that caught my attention. It's like that. It is sort of a RICO situation, isn't it? And true, true. It, go ahead. 
I got it in the book. You know what the term I use for those editors of the high impact? I call them the editorial mafia. That's literally the term that I yeah. used in my book because they acted like a mafia. I mean, they were in lockstep. They knew what they were doing. I mean, a memo went out. I mean, they, they got orders from up high, you know, do not publish positive ivermectin data. And the, the actual trials that were uh, submitted to them, you know, the, I'm using air quotes again, high quality, rigorous, double blind, placebo controlled, right? There's five or six of them. There's really six. You know, there were so many problems with those trials. Like if I had done one of those trials, never would have seen publication. It would have never passed peer review. They were pulling shenanigans, like changing endpoints in the middle. You know, they were like making sure the control groups, especially the, the trials in South America, they literally were allowing control groups to get ivermectin. So it's very hard to prove that ivermectin is better than ivermectin. Right. And I mean, it's it was astonishing what we discovered in those trials. Now, there's something I, I have noticed that I think is very interesting. I, I speaking of the tip of the spear, I think the the first rung on the ladder of not to mix all my metaphors up here, but the, the pendulum swinging is Annals of Internal Medicine. I don't know if you've been watching them, but that's one of the journals I read every regularly. And uh in fact, I'll be honest, in recent years, they've not published a lot of stuff that, that you know, really was very useful to me the way some of the other ones are, but I, I, I read it. And they published the Danish study on masking. Everybody else mm. turned that down, and they were the one that published it. And I thought that caught my attention because there was so much excitement around that study that we were going to find out masks finally, find what the deal is with masks. New England Journal passed, actually canceled it. JAMA canceled it. Like, in other words, they were going to publish it and then canceled the publication. And then Annals did so because, of course, it was a negative test, as so they've all been. It, uh, mass, mass masking mandates do not work. Not saying that N95 can't protect you if you weren't perfectly, but mask utilization does not work. Number one. Number two, two weeks ago, a journal came out in Annals Actually, I actually tweeted the volume number and the everything because it was so astonishing to me. Had three or four articles that were finally something completely different than I'd seen in the entire pandemic, including one that showed that fluvoxamine with budesonide worked and worked rather well in the early treatment of mild to moderate COVID. Did you catch that article? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that is a change. I okay. think that is a change. Right. Yeah, th that one in the same journal they they <laughs> they questioned how we were uh, recording vaccine efficacy and safety and just made a simple <laughs> publication on how to organize a study with sort of match controls since it's all underway already be easier for them to do they just make this case that we should be doing these match control studies and there was a third article too in there that can't remember what it was. It, it didn't. It didn't stay with me as much. But again, it was again a, a, a different direction. Everything had been going in one direction, and now it's oh another direction, which I'm used to in medical literature. Things you know, sort of going back and forth until a consensus is reached. I think annals may be the leading edge of the change. I'll be interested when the next one comes out. Keep an eye on those guys. They seem to be honest players. I think I'm gonna say. Drew, I think you're more optimistic than me. My, my cynicism <laughs> okay, now has, maybe not. It really has no bounds. I've been defeated and I've just demoralized. But I, I do think that, you know, there are there is, and I like what you said, right? There's never, even in a drug that works, 
there are negative studies and positive studies. You know, the preponderance of the evidence will give you the signal, but it's never like uniformly yeah. one side. You can't, science isn't that reproducible. Yeah. We know that there's a reproducibility problem in science. And and to hear that everything, you know, around the vaccines is safe and effective, it's it's like, <laughs> that's yeah, not let's, possible. You're right. right? Only safe and effective. Let's remind ourselves that the medical literature is still has an active engagement around SSRIs and whether there's a net benefit there. Statins, is there a net benefit there? These are routinely commonly prescribed medicines for which there is a consensus, and yet still the literature comes around and it you know takes a good look at whether we're really doing the right thing or not, which is how it works. And some of those studies suggest otherwise, and that is medical literature. That's, that's what we're used to seeing. And think about it, three years in the majors not seeing a single a single study that called into question anything other than what can only be called dogma. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Does academic – go ahead. Finish your thought. So, yeah, I want to make a couple of bigger points on that because you, you're really on to something here. So, right. you know, for instance, this morning, this is what I woke up to. I, I had a colleague send me a paper. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis of the performance of the vaccine in pregnancy. It's in Nature Communications. And my jaw dropped. The conclusion of this paper was that they were abundantly safe, highly effective, and they even claimed that the vaccinated cohort had 15% less stillbirths. I had never seen such raging propaganda as I saw this morning. So propaganda is alive and well. The other point that I want to make is when you talk about things like statins and SSRIs, um, so this anecdote that I say is, you know, for my book, what, what, what really actually motivated me to write the book is after my Senate testimony on ivermectin, I spent the next three months really confused, Drew. I didn't know what was going on. Like, I literally thought we were putting out really good science that was incredibly important for the world to know. My review paper had dozens of studies and, and health ministry reports, and we had over the overwhelming evidence of efficacy. Yet within two days, I got a hit job in the Associated Press. They went after me. They went after my organization. And, and then I just see all of these attacks on ivermectin for three months. And then what happened was in early March of 2021, I got an email from this professor. Uh, his name is William B. Grant. He's one of the most published researchers on the science around vitamin D. And it was a two-line email, and he wrote, Dear Dr. Corey, what they've been doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included a link to the disinformation playbook. And then I, when I read that article and I saw the tactics, it was like a click, like a, a light bulb went on. And like suddenly the world made sense again. Like I realized that myself and Paul and our organization had launched ourselves right into the middle of a decades-long war on repurposed drugs. But the point I want to make is about vitamin D, is that, you know, Drew, like you mentioned around statins, like we're still trying to sort out, do they work? Are they helpful? Is there a net benefit? Here's the problem. When you look at the history of studies around any particular therapy, if you look at the literature on vi vitamin D, it is so polluted with pharma-conflicted trials, where they start the dose of vitamin D too late, they use the wrong formulation, uh, wrong disease, you know, trying to go for the wrong levels too low. And so when you actually see systematic reviews on vitamin D for any number of conditions, do you know what they conclude? Is that there's really no evidence of benefit because the entire body of literature is literally polluted. I mean, 
I, I would say that the biggest threat to pharma is vitamin D. I think they know very, very well that higher, not only are higher dose, uh, higher levels safe, but they, there's a massive evidence that it reduces the incidence of any number of diseases, including cancer and infectious illness. But if you read the medical literature, Drew, that's not the conclusion you're going to reach because you're going to see so many negative trials. And so I, I got to tell you, I'm a little lost. I'm, I'm a little estranged as a physician now. I don't really know how to read medical literature. I'll tell you one trick I use is I start with the conflicts. And if there are obvious conflicts of interest with pharma, and by the way, most big randomized controlled trials are done by pharma conflicted researchers. So you don't get to that level where they give you the keys or the steering wheel of a large funded randomized controlled trial unless you're already in deep with pharma. And so I, I, you know, I look at the conflicts and, and I refuse to believe any paper where the investigators clearly have conflicts of interest with the compound being studied or in terms of ivermectin, competitors to ivermectin, right? So, so one, one of the most glaring examples is the NIH, when they finally slow walked and got around to doing a trial on ivermectin and COVID, who did they choose? They, choo they chose a woman from Duke, Susanna Nagy. I, I think the grant was like 140 million or 40 million. And if you look at her conflicts, she literally owned stock in a monoclonal antibody for Omicron, which at the time was a direct competitor to ivermectin. She gets fees from Gilead and remdesivir. And that trial has the most brazen example of data manipulation. It's literally in the paper. They literally have to admit that they admitted the data, uh, that they manipulated the data, but no big, pay no, no big newspaper articles around this, no outcry from physicians, nothing. And, and we've tried to attack, uh, for instance, the other big trial, the TOGETHER trial. A whole bunch of us researchers wrote you know, a scathing letter to the other, telling them that they have to retract that paper. There was just too many brazen inconsistencies, manipulations that were obvious, and that letter to the other was rejected. They're not going to publish it. They, they're leaving these studies up that people cite as truth. I'll give you an example, Drew. Before, this, uh, before we came on today, a friend of mine I guess was looking at comments on like your chat page, you know, and someone said something really nice about me. And then someone underneath just simply said, large double blind randomized control trials have shown ivermectin not to work. That's how it works. They put those big trials in the big journals and people accept them as dogma. And, and, I, and then I, they batter me over the head with it. Like, I don't know how to read medical literature or I don't know how to judge the efficacy of, an, of a, a drug. It's, it's, it's tiresome and it's really, really sad. Dr. Pierre Corey is with us here today. Uh, we are going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here in just a second. Uh, again, Pierre Corey can be followed on Twitter, K-O-R-Y, and uh, the Substack, Pierre Corey, and drpierrecorey.com. We'll be right back with and joined by Dr. Kelly Victory in just a second. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend, let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor, especially since renowned internist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and, and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this 
for heart and vascular disease now. For 20 years, it's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants, all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com TWC. That is drdrew.com TWC. Use code DREW at checkout for 10% off today. I recently discovered Paleo Valley. They have a line of products that align perfectly with a paleo dietary regimen. Goodbye to the limited rotation of eggs, burgers, and the standard fare. Hello to a wide variety of extraordinary products that are both healthful and delicious. Paleo Valley offers a spectacular range of options, including 100% grass-fed beef sticks. They're packed with nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, glutathione, CLA, and bioavailable protein. Plus, keto-friendly make for a great protein-rich snack on the go. Paleo Valley's tasty beef sticks are not just 100% grass-fed, but also grass-finished, sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. and flavored with real organic spices. They're also fermented, which means they contain natural probiotics that are great for gut health, and they taste amazing. Try them out by heading over to drdrew.com slash paleovalley to get 15% off your first order today. Don't miss out on this opportunity to discover a brand that is perfect for your paleo lifestyle. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the US dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate of public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. As we welcome Dr. Kelly Vickery. Hey, Dr. Corey, so happy that you uh, could join us. Thank you. You have been an unbelievable warrior from the beginning of this debacle, uh, and I'm really excited to, to read the book. Um, before I say, I've got gobs of questions to ask you because it's been a long time since we've done this live, um, but I'm going to start where you and Drew left off. Um, you said something that is a, almost mirrors what I've said over and over again, which is somebody died and made me king. I would have the journals have to post the conflicts of interest above the title of the of the study of the article uh, in a journal to decide whether or not I even want to read the damn thing. Um, I like you have become really really jaded, 
during this three and a half years. It's been exhausting and debilitating. I used to pride myself in being that physician who went to the source or what I considered to be the source. I went to the journal. I wasn't lazy. I was intellectually curious. I read more than the abstract. I'd read the whole article and I'd formulate my decisions and my thoughts based on reading the study. Now, fast forward, I feel like I, you know, just somebody just said, oh, you know, Santa Claus isn't real, Kelly. You know, all of a sudden I just found out that the whole thing is a big fat lie. And I'm not, you know, uh, ignorant enough or naive enough perhaps to think that this is the first time it's come to light for me during this COVID pandemic. But my entire medical career really now has been called into question. Everything that I've done, my I, prior to this, I considered my, as, as outspoken as I've been about the you know disaster of these COVID vaccines, I would have considered myself very pro-vaccine previously based on my under, understanding of this, quote, the studies, your old air quotes, the studies, the research. Talk about that piece. This didn't just start with ivermectin and vitamin D. How deep do no. you think this goes? And, and where, what do well, we as physicians do with this? So, Kelly, I mean, everything you just said, I think have, those words have come out of my mouth. Same thing. I mean, this transformation, this exposure of the deep, the deep rot and, and, and iron-fisted control over the medical literature of pharma is it's truly been very disorienting. Like, I, I really don't even know what to believe anymore. And then, like you said, mm -hmm. when, going, when you go back historically, so, so the opinion that you just articulated and I kind of did earlier, you know, I, I want to make the point, this is not new. Like, these opinions have been held. And my favorite example that I uphold is Dr. Marsha Angel, right? So she was the chief editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, the number one highest impact medical journal in the world, 20 years. She stepped down from her post in the year 2001 because she couldn't take it anymore. And then she wrote wow. a book. And in that book, so this is 20 years ago, she's trying to sound the alarm that the literature has been captured. And that's 20 years ago. And now, forget it. Now they have media, major media, you know, so, so the, the, their, their ability to censor and propagandize is, I would say, 10 times what it was in 2001, but it starts at the source, which is the med published medical literature. And so um, it, it, it's really hard. I mean, all the things for so many years we've been told doesn't work, especially around vitamins. Like vitamins are a sensitive issue right. to pharma. They do mm -hmm. not want you to take simple over-the-counter supplements that could actually prevent you from getting ill. It's, it's really quite scary that they, they don't care. I mean, they traffic in disease. They want people to be sick. And it's right. such a terrible thing to say, like, who are these people that actually wants the population to be sick? But the way they behave, you cannot arrive at any other conclusion that it's a good business model. Right. right? Well, they're not only, you know, it's not only a war on repurposed medication. They're actually talking about regulating now those over-the-counter things like vitamins. They want to actually regulate, in other words, make vitamin D something that's only available by prescription. Uh, in order to, you know, keep it out of the hands of people who would otherwise uh, be treating themselves. So talk a little bit. You, you get, get you, you, go ahead. No, no, I just love that point. I mean, like, I'm, I'm the thought that popped in my head is like, I'm going to have to get my vitamin D from the black market now. 
like the, the guy on the right. corner who's got the you know best yeah. shipment of vitamin D. And like, and when you think about it, right? So, so that's an example of the immense control that they have. So they control mm-hmm. the legislator, right? So in 2021, they the lobby for the pharmaceutical industry, which is I think two to three times the lobby industry for coal and gas. Okay, it is so large; it averages out to six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in one year per congressperson on Capitol Hill. That is how massive their influence there. So, I mean, look at COVID. They were writing laws. They they were basically telling the government to buy remdesivir, to buy Paxil. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. the government's sitting there writing checks. Like they're actually, the farmers literally holding the legislators' hands, writing these checks for billions of dollars. And and so, so, and then, right? So I think Ivermectin is an example, right? They got it removed. They got like the entire retail pharmacy industry to refuse to fill. They scared right. and badgered right. the pharmacists. They took it right. out of hospital formularies. Kelly, when, when in your career have you ever been told you couldn't use a medicine? Ne- never. This is repurposed medicines uh, represent probably 30% of all prescriptions written on a daily basis are medications that are being written for something that they were not originally designed for. 30%. I have never in my career, and in fact, I'm unaware of any anecdotal reports of somebody refusing, and a pharmacist, for example, refusing to fill a prescription, a legitimate prescription written by a licensed physician. This is absolutely unbelievable. So suffice to say, none of this could have happened without without the propaganda that is the the story, the quote storied medical literature, um, and the you know the fact that. There's agency capture uh, by by big pharma. There's there's no question. Um, then you yeah. add in social media, the impact of social media. And I've said many times that I really do hope that the next international crisis involves something like commodities pricing or international financial markets, something I know nothing about so that I can argue incessantly with people who have an entire career and education in these things. You know, all of these people you know every everybody out there with a twitter account or a facebook account or instagram account is arguing with you because they can simply post that one line that they read about an article so so social media put this whole thing i think on steroids because anyone could oh, yeah. could weigh in yeah so and, you, and that's book, i mean there go ahead go ahead as they say your your yeah, book yeah, no, i want to your your book focuses on ivermectin. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And I'm guessing that you cover this in the book. In your estimation, um, or the, the data that you've looked at, what would the difference have been in the outcome, not only in the United States, but globally, had they not had a war just on ivermectin? Um, you know, obviously, there are lots of other drugs. Drew mentioned fluvoxamine and steroids and lots of others that you and I have used during this this pandemic. but just ivermectin, what would the difference have been, in your opinion, in terms of the global impact of COVID? So here, how I would answer that question with looking at probably the two most effective ivermectin early treat pro- treatment programs in the world, uh, both of which I cover. One, I actually devote a whole chapter to, but one is the case of Uttar Pradesh, right? So the northern northern Indian state in India, 241 million people. I think it would be the sixth or 10th largest country in the world if it was a country, right? So it's this massive Indian state. 
And when you look at what they did in Uttar Pradesh, so they had this massive uh, public health committee team. They called them Team 11. And they actually got into hydroxychloroquine early. So they were using hydroxychloroquine early in 2020. All healthcare workers, they were doing early treatment with it. Then when they discovered, they felt that ivermectin's efficacy was superior. They switched to ivermectin. And they did the most aggressive program I've ever seen. I mean, they literally had... I think it was 160,000 healthcare workers visiting 97,000 villages. They did the most testing in India. So they did rapid testing. Anyone positive, ivermectin. Anyone in the household who tested positive, ivermectin. All healthcare workers were taking ivermectin. And after that Delta wave in 2021, six months later, they continued this program. And by the way, the wave that hit India, this is what no one recognized. Remember, remember when like uh, every headline and newscast was leading with how like, India was getting completely hammered with COVID during that Delta wave. Right. And people actually mm -hmm. used that to argue that ivermectin didn't work. But here's the truth about that. If you look at the spikes, the massive increases in cases and death, it's really a sharp spike. Like they extinguished it quicker than anyone, and particularly in Uttar Pradesh, because Uttar Pradesh is a home for millions of migrant workers from the other big cities. And so when they started to get hit with Delta, people were afraid of lockdowns. They, fl they, they fleed back to Uttar Pradesh. There was a huge spike because this program was in place. And they literally were, they were testing at airports, bus stations, train stations. Mm -hmm. And by September of 2021, they had done so much testing in the two week period before September 16th of 2021, in their last two and a half million tests, they had only 211 positive tests. Right. And they had 67 out of 75 districts with not one active case. So you're talking about like the United States having like 40 states without an active case, right? right. It would be very yeah. similar. Yeah. And so, so when you ask me like, what is, what, how could it have been different? I'll point to what Uttar Pradesh did. And then, uh, then I'll yeah. also point to Mexico city and there's other cities. I mean, what Mexico city did right. um, was absolutely tremendous. I mean, they literally emptied hospitals, case counts went down and they, they started seeing very little hospitalization and death. And that was from also a mass mobile distribution where they had mobile units, you know, testing and treating and testing and treating. And so, in terms of sheer numbers, you know, it's hard to put numbers like how many millions would have been saved because, as you know, right. the numbers are inflated, right? You know, I, we don't really right. know how many people died from right. COVID, with right. COVID, and PCR right. test. Everybody's right. dying from COVID. So, but when you look at the percentages, I mean, even in the WHO guideline document, so when they did the review of ivermectin, they like excluded all of these trials. They were just like whittling down mm -hmm. the evidence base. But the weird thing is, is the the trials that they kept in their review document. Do you know what the estimate was? Is that there was an 81% reduction in mortality. It was statistically significant. But they yeah. said this is such low certainty evidence. They came to the conclusion <laughs> that the average person, the average citizen on earth, based on low certainty of evidence, would not want to take ivermectin outside of a clinical trial. And so can you think about how absurd that statement is? So picture, I, I like to do this like a, like scenario. So I'm picturing a patient in bed, breathless. Uh, the doctor comes mm -hmm. in and says, we have this decades long, old, safe, uh, repurposed drug. Best estimates are that it has an 81% chance of reducing your, your chance of dying. Um, but the evidence is of low certainty, super safe, the evidence of low certainty. And then the patient answers, doctor, I'm not comfortable taking that medicine unless it's done within the context of a clinical trial. 
Right. I mean, it's preposterous. Right. It's preposterous because because you don't have once something is that safe. And they did such a good job. Again, the propaganda that it was horse paced, that you were somehow taking a veterinary medication with all of these, you know, potential deadly side effects. When in fact, ivermectin is over the counter in almost every country other than the United States and Canada. It is taken like, you know, candy in most of the world. If you look at the entire continent of Africa, with the exception of South Africa, there's very, very low vaccination rate. They had massive COVID outbreaks and they did swimming and went, you know, swimmingly because they all are taking either ivermectin for intestinal parasites or routine hydroxychloroquine for the treatment or prevention of malaria. I mean, this was this is insane. So in addition to Uttar Pradesh, you know, it crazy. The, the data is so overwhelming. And like someone like you and me, Kelly, we could do this for hours. I'd be like this, that, like I've never seen, you know, when Drew and I were talking earlier. We talked about how like a lot of times evidence conflicts and whatnot, but I, I would argue like outside of those six fraudulent trials that were published in the high impact journals, I mean, I've never seen such one-sided data. I mean, anywhere you look, you have right. abundant data right. from many, many different sources showing that this thing was a COVID crusher, you know? And and yeah. it, so it's, it's it's yeah, it's it's shocking. Um, I want to make one correction to what you just said because uh, there's a little feather in our cap. Ivermectin is over-the-counter in Tennessee. You know, we testified, we, well, my colleague Paul Marion testified, and we got the Tennessee legislature to pass a bill making it over the counter, uh, freeing up pharmacists and physicians from using it. So, I mean, we we we, we notched a little victory there. So, um, you yeah. Know, it, well, let, let me let me clarify. Let, let me ask you to clarify that because I posted this. I thought that the the bill that was signed by the Tennessee governor said that it could be g- distributed by a pharmacist without a doctor's order, but that a patient still had to go through the pharmacist. So, it, it's not. I looked at that it, huge win, by the way. Don't I'm not I'm not di, uh, diminishing right. the, the the win. It's much more accessible, but it's not technically over the counter the way ibuprofen is or or Tylenol. True. You can't just walk in as a patient and get it. You've got to go to the pharmacist. I think that's fair that it's probably overstating it to say it's over the counter like Tylenol or something else like that. But at the same time, it, it, it oh, there's a couple little restrictions that the, there has to be a physician that has some sort of agreement with the pharmacy. But literally, it, it does right. allow anyone to walk into the pharmacy and come out yep. with ivermectin without going yeah. to the doctor. You know, you really have. And, the, you know, what's interesting is one of the pharmacies ships to all 50 states. So like you can actually contact this one pharmacy in Tennessee and they will send it to you wherever you are. So, you know, you're, you're right. It's not as uh, open and free and like out on the shelf, but it's, there's very little restriction to getting access to it. So, um, yeah, yeah, we were pretty proud of that. So that, that, that it's awesome. And I am hoping that that will spread to other states. Um, the FLCCC, the Frontline Critical Care Coalition, that you are so critical, you know, so uh, pivotal in, in forming, and you guys did great work during the height of the pandemic when people were really looking for treatment. Now that the pandemic is over, and, and let's face it, has truly been over for probably a, a year and a half or two years now. What what are you seeing in terms of trying to help people? I'm assuming that you are now helping people primarily with vaccine-related injuries, vaccine-related problems, um, and and long COVID. If you if you think that that's really a, an actual entity, are you using ivermectin or other things, other repurposed drugs to help those folks? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all repurposed drugs. And yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. So as a nonprofit, yes, we, we went from one humanitarian catastrophe, which was COVID, right? And the lack of early treatments and all right. that. And, and, and then we have to deal with another, which is just the legion, the epidemic of people that are injured. And, and so many of them are, right. are really chronically ill. It's very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome. And we've now held two medical conferences, very well attended, huge positive reviews on them, where we presented as much evidence we could on how to approach and treat what we're calling spike protein induced disease. And mm -hmm. um, the most recent one, and all the lectures are available on the flccc.net website. Um, we ask for a little donation, but you don't have to pay. So people who want to learn more about how we think you should treat this um, and, or want to listen to some of the lectures can, can go there. And so that's one big thing that we've been working on. And, and then I have a private practice where that's all I do. Me and my partner, we, we do general medicine as well. I have a couple of partners who do that, but um, you know, one partner in particular, all we do is focus on treating these patients with vaccine injury. And, and I'm learning so much, Kelly, but it is wickedly comp complex. We're finding a lot of different strategies that are effective. None of it is effective in everyone. It's a really weird thing. Like I can't right. predict who's gonna respond to what, but generally the things that we use are safe. If there is a side effect, it's transient, none of, none of it's serious. And so, you know, I, I am I am learning a lot, but boy, do we have a lot more to learn. And, and surprise, Kelly, uh, our government has failed in responding. They, first of all, they don't even recognize vaccine injury. They call everything long COVID. But there was an article right. two weeks ago, I mean, literally $1.2 billion has been spent on research into long COVID. They had apparently five yeah. trials set yeah. up. Only one can enroll and they haven't enrolled one patient in. And guess what it is that they're studying in that one trial ready to go? Paxlovid. Oh. Right. Can, can you think of anything more absurd than that? I mean, right. a drug with 125 different drug interactions, it's an antiviral. Right. And how long can you use that for? Most of my patients, the, th the therapists that I use, I mean, they, they become chronic maintenance daily medicines. And so like, I, I, it's, right. so, it's so predictable and upsetting. And the, the incidence of rebound with Paxlovid, in my experience, is essentially 100%. Um, I, I, I can't, you know, we call it Paxlovid for a reason. Um, I, I think it's a horrible <laughs> drug. And other than other than remdesivir, otherwise known as run death is near. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to jump in never... as, a, as a Paxlovid fan myself, because the rebound uh, for sure, I'm just, I, just to give an alternative point of view here. Um, I Paxlovid stops things in its tracks. I mean, it's I use I treat a lot of very elderly patients, and so people that have, are, are at significant risk, and they it just stops immediately. And yes, Kelly, I agree. The rebound is very very common. And the re rebound is is absolutely characteristic. There's this the rumor going around that it's somehow or this sort of. It's not even a rumor. People have been trying to substantiate it. That somehow it's cytokine activation following the initial effect, infection. There is nothing about the syndrome of rebound that approximates cytokine activation. It's highly characteristic. It's cough, productive cough, bothersome cough, some chest pain sometimes, sometimes fever, and it goes on for quite a while. But they don't get sick, and it's nothing about it that looks like cytokine activation. My well, point of view. Uh Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin. 
Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I'll tell you this in the hundreds, if not thousands, of patients that myself and my colleagues have treated, uh, I do recall one. My partner actually told me that he had one rebound on ivermectin. I don't know if it was similar to what you described, but he did have a patient who got better and then got worse. But that's the only case I know of. I mean, None of my patients go through what you described, Drew. I've never used Paxlova just because we trust our protocols, their combination therapy, they're safe, that we know they work. And so, uh, but here's the thing. Let me push you push back on you with Paxlova. So I like that you said yeah. you're treating elderly risk patients because that's really what the data, if you want to believe that data, I don't believe any data anymore like that, but <laughs> that, tr- that drug failed in low risk patients. That drug failed, failed. They, had, they, they couldn't even complete yep. the trial because it wasn't working. So- I don't know. I have a big question around it, but I haven't used it. So I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert at using it. Um, but uh, I haven't just, I just haven't had the need to use it. Um, let's change gears for a second here. You know, when you came on and, and certainly you and I have talked uh, many times over this uh, duration of this pandemic, the demoralizing impact of what's happened here uh, and the way you explained it when you first came on is palpable. Uh, I certainly, I certainly share it. It has been a really a horrific last three years uh, to see what's happened to our profession, to see what's happened to the people who were harmed by big pharma, to see all of our politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, buy in. They are all owned by big pharma. The journals are owned by big pharma. Our profession was horrible. To us, let, let you know. Forget how your neighbor treated you, or how your boss treated you, or how you know your family members who drank the Kool Aid treated you. Our own profession has been absolutely decimated and controlled by this. You lost more than one uh, position, uh, and. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about where do we go from here? Where does medicine go from here? Uh, you know, we, we have people losing their licenses and being, you know, uh, chastised and sanctioned. I defended my own license seven times during the past three years, fortunately, successfully, but it is debilitating. It's exhausting and demoralizing. Yeah. And they, they're not stopping. I mean, they're not letting up. I mean, they're going harder and harder, uh, you know, with these boards. I also have nine complaints at my medical board, none, none from patients, right? None from patients, right, just right. from pharmacists and physicians, because I'm a misinformationist. Um, but yeah, so where do we go from here? And, and I, I got to tell you, Kelly, I, I think there's a lot of places to go, but you can't go anywhere without an awakening. So, so the, the, what you discovered in your COVID journey and what I discovered, and by the way, let me say a couple other things about the book. So the book, although it does have a central section, which really focuses on the, the, all of the elements of the big disinformation campaign attacking ivermectin, the book is a little bit of a biography. It actually starts with, I, I kind of describe who I was before COVID, you know, what I believed, what I thought was society and the institutions and 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 then you know it kind of comes to the end after a COVID journey. And and by the way, you know the things that I did in COVID is way beyond ivermectin. I mean, just the history of the FLCCC, what our impacts was, our right. advocacy for corticosteroids before the whole world figured that out. Um, you know, vaccine injury, and so and also I was involved in 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 trying to call attention to the fact that this was aerosol transmitted, which you know the CDC didn't 
recognized for a year the who i think it took him two years and i was like first in april of 2020 i was literally writing op-eds like come on this is aerosol transmitted and so yeah. anyway so it's, it's it's kind of a journey uh it's half biography journey and then i really show what what the truth is that happened with ivermectin and you know as far as where do we go from here i mean I just think, I ha where can we go, Kelly, until the vast majority of doctors understand what happened in COVID, which is that they were lied to. They were lied to from like 360 degrees, agencies, societies, and journals. And the way they practice medicine, they, you know, let's, let's consider the average physician just unwitting and, and a true believer faith in these institutions, right? Um, they carried out those protocols and that guidance, thinking that this is the top level scientists and doctors in the world. And, you know, these protocols of like that tiny dose of dexamethasone with a shot of remdesivir is the best medicine we got, right? right. Um, they have to realize what they did. And they have to, I think they have to come to the conclusion mm -hmm. that they were lied to and they were led astray and they hurt right. people. They hurt people. And right. I think once they come to that realization, then we can have a conversation. Then we can talk about maybe starting new journals where there's no pharmaceutical money, right? The Journal of Repurposed no, Drugs. No. And, and, you know, and I love, I love what Drew said. I didn't realize that Bobby said the first thing he wants to do is he wants to call the editors oh, yeah. of the journals. And they, that is so brilliant. It's like the most brilliant thing I've ever heard because literally it's that editorial mafia that that literally has – captured and corrupted science. And if you still have that mafia in play, you're never going to get good, objective, transparent analysis of data that we need to make good decisions, right? For our health. Yeah. And as, and, and as uh, um, no, absolutely. We had that conversation a couple of weeks ago with, with, with Bobby Kennedy. And I thought his approach was great about it uh, because we do have to clear house uh, and we have to expose it. I also agree with you that there is no healing and there is no forgiveness without contrition. Uh, and that means that people are going to have to acknowledge their complicity uh, in, in this entire thing, including the fact, and that's a lot of our own colleagues are going to have to acknowledge, you know, you know, I, I was just doing what I was told is not an excuse. Um, you, you know, that, that doesn't fly. Uh, doing what I was told or people, the people who said to me, well, I, I can't afford to speak out because I have a mortgage to pay. And I'm like, yeah, okay, because yeah. Peter Corey and I don't have a mortgage to pay. Um, you know, yeah, we all, uh, <laughs> in the words of John Milton, uh, you know, virtue untested is no virtue at all. Um, it, it, it's, it requires, these times require you to be brave and courageous and to do what you, you know, which your oath of first do no harm uh, signed us up for. Let's talk about part of the reason I think it's so important to talk about these repurposed medications is because something else is coming. I don't know what. I don't have a crystal ball. They ran monkeypox up the flagpole and no one saluted. So they said, OK, well, that that was a fail. We tried to re, you know, drive people to fear with that. They started talking about Marburg virus. You know, that was they were I thought that was going to be their their next hat trick. Uh Something else is coming. It's likely going to be another uh, respiratory virus. All of these repurposed medications, including ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, talk about that. The, the, the fact that these are not virus-specific drugs that you have put together in this protocol. They are not a single virus-specific. They have application quite broadly, correct? Yes. I, I love that you're bringing up this issue because 
you are right. They are trying to recreate the home run that they hit with COVID. I mean, opening up a market of hundreds, you know, hundred billion for vaccines and therapeutics and, you know, rinse, repeat. And, and you're absolutely right. I, that's how I interpret monkeypox. That was just a failed attempt to recreate the magic. Uh, Marburg, I don't know what they're doing with Margaret, but, but to your point, the website called c19early.org, I don't know if you're familiar with the website, but it's a group of anonymous researchers who from very early in the pandemic, these are high level statisticians. They know how to review literature. They have this phenomenal website. It's a compendium of every single trial on every single therapeutic studied in COVID. So if you look and then they, every, 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 every therapy listed on there and they, they, they review pharma, not repurpose. It's not just repurpose. I mean, they have all of the evidence for remdesivir and Paxlovid and all that, but they have the same meta-analysis protocol, which is how they summarize the data, put it in one, then do their analyses. And if you go there right now, Kelly, there are 43 effective medicines against COVID. 43 different interventions with controlled trials. And the vast majority of them have over four controlled trials, right? And so, you know, as far, and that's another, this is the kind of the positive part, which is so beautiful because here's where I started before COVID. Now, I know you're, you're way ahead of me because you went through SARS and all that stuff, but like, I literally <laughs> believe before COVID that what, would, what we had for viruses was valcyclovir for herpes, gancyclovir for CMV, you know, I might be missing, you know, Tamiflu for flu, which is absolutely, that's another fraud, right? Tamiflu is yeah. absolute fraudulent. <laughs> basically, basically, I had my knowledge of effective antiviral therapy rested on those three. Now I'm here three years later. Mm -hmm. You have dozens of repurposed drugs. Think about just povidone iodine mouthwashes right. and nasal sprays. Just that alone, nonspecific, broad antiviral. You do that. The, your chance of hospitalization is drastically reduced. So we have all of these therapeutic approaches now. I got to tell you personally, I'm not worried about the next one because you're right. I do think it's going right. to be a virus. We have really right. broad antivirals. We know how to deploy them in combination, synergistic combinations. I mean, I'll just say, you know, listen to someone like you, come to the FLCCC, we'll be there. By the way, when RSV and flu exploded in the fall, remember those numbers? I don't know if you remember that, but it was like October, oh, November. Yeah. We were seeing numbers of flu and RSV, and you saw a lot of RSV in, in adults. I'm going to tell you, FLCC, we were pretty quick, and we came out with a protocol for uh, for flu and RSV. And one of the things that was on it was nitazoxanide, which is really effective in COVID. It's an older, like, mm -hmm. anti-parasite, like you said, over-the-counter in Brazil, widely used in Brazil. Uh, we used that. We used uh, elderberry uh, as well as ivermectin. So we kind of had, like, a we were trying to address the, the spike in RSV and flu. Um, Obviously, the media attacked mm -hmm. us, you know, uh, no evidence and all that stuff. There's actually a phase three randomized controlled trial of nitazoxanide and flu, and it's positive. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I, to your point, uh, there is stuff coming um, if they if they do choose an infectious illness, which is a virus, highly transmissible. Well, yeah, I, I think we have I, I want to talk a little further about that, a little further about what what comes next, because. We have, uh, I, I think you're both aware, we have this world of pandemic ink. Professionals and professional organizations oh, yeah. that are just there to get paid and prepare for the next pandemic, a giant hammer waiting for a nail. And we have the culture of medicine now such that 
to be able to be thinking autonomously or behaving to what your professional judgment suggests is the best interest of your patient is suddenly become anathema to the practice of medicine, which I, as I listened to our conversation today, I feel like that's the, the big shadow hanging over both of us, that all of us, which is you're not allowed to use your judgment. The only people left using their judgment are surgeons because nobody can get in the surgical field with them and start to dictate what they do. <laughs> and believe me, if insurance companies and others, uh, you know, resources could do so, they would. Uh, but surgeons are left free to use their judgment. But we now are the cognitive medical sciences, as we call it, have now giant infrastructures over us. And what comes down from on high is thus saith the Lord. How do we, I mean, what has happened here? I, I, this is what COVID revealed to me more than anything else. How do we manage that part, Dr. Corey, of what we've learned about our profession? So, so I, oh, you nailed it, Drew. I mean, so first of all, right, we know that over the last 20 years, right, uh, medicine's become corporatized, right? It's huge, massive health systems. They have top-down protocols, any physician on staff, you're going to do what they say and what they say not to do. And the, so it, I think Peter McCullough said this. I mean, literally the physicians in the United States who saved the most patients were the private practice physicians, the community-based physicians yeah. outside those systems, because there is still some autonomy. Um, and the other, th so we have these refuges, right? So private practice is number one. Number two, we luckily in this country have a system of compounding pharmacies. And in my experience, yeah. almost every single compounding pharmacy I have ever used in COVID has been sympathetic and supportive of the use of repurposed drugs. So we, we, cause I've, I've talked to people in Europe, uh, like in Switzerland. I mean, there's no such thing as a compounding pharmacy. By the way, here's, right. you want to know the best evidence that ivermectin works is that one colleague in Austria told me that. One 12 milligram tablet on the black market was 50 euros. How wow. do you get 50 euros for wow. that doesn't work, right? So, but to your point, right. Drew, so not only that, but then I practice right now, um, I'm actually practicing under the jurisdiction of uh, the Crow Indian tribe, which formed using federal statutes, something called right. the First Nation Medical Board. And so I don't have, I don't, I'm not under the jurisdiction of any, any state. Um, as long as the patients who come see me join the tribe and my patient is a tribal member, that relationship and that practice of medicine is protected uh, under that, that authority. So we talk about parallel systems, right? So that parallel system of medicine, I'm almost afraid to talk about it because if it becomes successful, you know they're going to shut it down. They're going to pass legislation and they're going to they're going to come after us, right? And but I do think that there's if there is an awakening, if there is a reckoning, we talked about a contrition, or people realize that they were lied to and this was one big fraud. Um, I think there's a lot of places we could. I mean, like I said, we can open up some journals, try to rid the the conflicts of interest from taking over and 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 restoring autonomy. Here's the last piece of evidence that I will tell you that in this war, not only was a war of information, but it was really a war by the pharmaceutical industry. All of those top-down federal-level actions from like Federation of Medical Boards, right? all of the state medical boards, there, there has been pushback in this war, and that's at the state legislator level. So there's a web page on the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is a legislative map, and it shows in every state every active bill that's COVID-related. And if you actually look at the descriptions of the bills, Across the country, I would say 90 to 95% of those bills listed are all in terms of 
allowing physicians to provide repurposed drugs, you know, uh, freeing up pharmacists to fill those prescriptions, and really just restoring the autonomy of physicians to use their judgment. So I, I will say that it hasn't been a total loss. There is a pushback. Um, I think it's at the state legislator level because the feds have been captured. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I've committed to is I'll, I'll go to any state, any state legislator and try to testify in support of that legislation because that's that's really the last line of defense. I mean, it, it, we that's, have to protect that's ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, although I shuddered a little bit today when I discovered, I, I thought this was actually uh, apocryphal, but I tried to check it out. It looks like it's true that uh, you're both, I'm sure, aware what the World Health Organization is uh, organizing to perpetrate. And just today they right. put a North Korean on their board and a uh, in the UK an active communist on the behavioral committee. So uh, in terms of threats from uh, on high, they're coming from many different sources. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. I, I'll tell you, let me just tell you something, Dr. Corey, I, in 2009, I wrote an article when we were looking down the barrel of the passage of Obamacare. And I wrote an article predicting that in an ironic twist of fate, the American Indian tribal nation was going to take control of one sixth of our economy, that being healthcare, uh, because as long as we practiced on sacred tribal ground, we could practice outside of the bounds of Obamacare. And that tribal nations, in the same way they have opened casinos and resorts, could open entire hospitals where physicians like you and I could go and practice outside of the restrictions uh, that were going to be Obamacare. Now, fast forward, we're seeing that with COVID. And they, there is a way, a parallel system that can be built. Um, and I think physicians didn't get where they are. They didn't get through all the education that they uh, because they weren't free thinkers and they weren't capable of thinking outside the box. Um, so it will be very interesting. And Drew, with regard to the WHO, again, I think there's going to be a workaround, despite the fact that we have uh, powers in this country, we love to hand our sovereignty over to the World Health Organization. I suspect that there are a few of us still standing uh, who don't intend to uh, abide by that. One, yeah, you you you're way ahead of the game. So like, you you saw this coming, and you saw some of the solutions. That that's really cool. I like that. Well, Drew, any, you guys any were kind of on? yeah, we're just sort of drifting on to to the the to the uh, end here. And uh, I know Dr. Corey has to get a flight to another country uh, imminently, so I want to <laughs> give him a chance to get out of here. But we do appreciate you coming in here and chatting with us. Um, uh, I I am all about, you know, we all don't agree on everything, but I, I, I just all about the open discourse. And I've had share everyone's concerns about the medical literature. Something was wrong. And I think it's correcting herself, even at least not, you know, not to the degree that we would all like to see it fully corrected. But I, I'm a little bit optimistic that I'm seeing something 
that looks like publications that uh, are sort of in the ordinary uh, dialogue. I hope you're right. I guess it's very, I really yeah. want to be right. Yeah, I do too. The question is, I don't know what I've been wrong about. I mean, with COVID, I know. I, 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 but what things in the past 30 years, what dogma, what things have I believed that actually aren't so? And I don't know how to get to the bottom of that. I need to reassess where I stand on lots of things, um, including, not the least of which, are our routine childhood vaccines and, and things of that yes. sort. Because I, I, I don't know where I've been wrong right now. And that's a scary position to be sitting in. I got a short Thus, list for we you, will Kelly. Statins, have... <laughs> SSRIs, SSRIs, childhood vaccines. I know I'm missing something else, but when you go back and start doing deep dives on that, it is astonishing yeah. what you learn. And yeah. so, anyway, yeah. but well, get, and and, and to be fair, let let me let me just say, our clinical judgment has value. And you mentioned statin SSRIs. I, I'm familiar with those that the back and forth literature there, but I think I know what I'm doing with them, and I know how to give informed consent to patients. That's what's sure. important. That my year, decades of experience has informed me, in spite of the adulteration of the literature. The problem is, we need the literature. We need that dearly. We need it. But our our clinical judgment has meaning, and it has been marginalized so much by the just like I said, with the surgeons in the surgical field, it's their judgment, their experience they're relying on to make decide what to what to do when they're in a situation that uh, is not what they anticipated. The same thing True. in medicine, and yeah, unless I, that is I, valued and supported, I, I thank you for saying that because I've been screaming that point for years. You know, as an educator in medicine, I ran a training program, I've taught residents, I've written textbooks, and you know. I have been really troubled over the last, uh, over my career with this, this evidence-based maniacism, which literally oh, discounts yeah. clinical experience yeah. and judgment of right. physicians. It, right. Basically, yeah. the underlying message to evidence-based medicine is that no doctor can determine what is effective without right. a large randomized control trial. Nothing is more absurd. Right. Nothing flies in the face of the history of medicine. Right. And so thank you for saying that because, you know, we can gain knowledge and, you know, intuition and set, like, we know how to treat patients. I don't need JAMA to put some trial in there to tell me what works or not. I can yeah. figure that out. Not only that, not, yeah. not only that, I have been through, if you've been practicing long, if you'll go through experiences where dogma, Women's Health Initiative, where we were told we were no better than witch doctors if we didn't comply with the Women's Health Initiative, turned out to be completely wrong, or right. standard of care, Pain is what the patient says it is. They should get 60 to 100 tablets yeah. when they walk out of the ER. Pain control is what the patient says it is. Here's the data. All that was total bullshit. And at the time, it was yeah. evidence-based and, and, and right. held up by every regulatory agents and professional society. It was all bullshit. And no one ever said sorry for that, by the way. And God knows nope. I suffered yeah. through some of the same stuff you guys are going through in this experience back then with all the regulators and the right. professional right. societies right. coming down on me like a ton of bricks. Right. It's, it's in the nature of this biological thing we're trying to manage. It, it's, not a, a, uh, it's, not a, it's not a computer program. It's not digital. Very different. Right. So spot on. Well, I totally agree. 
Well, we're going to let we're going to let you go. go. Wait, Thank you. On. I have one note oh, go to ahead. add to oh. it. Hang on, Susan. Susan's We've been dropping in. We got censored by YouTube at the beginning of the show. So you you guys did it. You pulled it off again. We're we're officially off YouTube. Well, but we I are on Rumble. They, and I I want to say hi to everybody anyone, who ended up over on Rumble. What's up here? I, I don't think Drew, that Drew, I don't think you're surprised that that Kelly. I mean, you knew that was going to happen. No. I mean, you guys were like I advertising <laughs> that I'm coming on. Now, and then I want to recount an yeah. The Journalist Matt Taibbi did an interview with me maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and did a, did an okay job. I thought he missed a few things, but in the in the article, he called me the ghost of the internet because wherever I go, <laughs> <laughs> people get demonetized, deplatformed. I'm like, I'm like such like a public bandit. I'm like public enemy number one. I mean, just, anyway, you guys knew hey. the risks of bringing it on. And so it is what it is. Got, you should wear, wear, wear it like a, too, but. wear it like a corsage, Pierre. In, in this world, oh, getting yeah, censored is, uh, is a badge of honor and, and means that you're a truth teller. Uh, you truly have been a warrior. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, you are indefatigable, you're courageous, um, and you've been a great leader. You've been a great great leader during this uh, past three and a half years. And uh, so thank you for coming back. Have a safe trip. And uh, we will look forward to reading the book. Pleasure. Indeed, and and I will both. say, we'll say goodbye to everyone. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock. And we, we actually... will be uploading the entire episode later in one piece because it is in a couple okay. of different pieces right now. And, and also thank you everybody over on, uh, on Twitter spaces, I had to reboot that three times. And then, um, you know what? Bad PR is good PR. That's all I can say. Well, and tomorrow we are speaking to Ram Yogender, who's also a little bit of a phantom on the internet. And he talked, he has some uh, long code <laughs> protocol. there's a possibility it won't be on YouTube. And, so and just make sure you go to Rumble or one of the other platforms. And a friend it. of mine who uh, suffered a severe vaccine injury is going to tell his story. So you can hear what that's like for people that have oh, that. Oh, good. Okay. All right. We will uh, then see you all tomorrow at three o'clock. Sounds good. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.